This is Magic City Soccer. Es el fútbol de la ciudad mágica. This is Magic City Soccer. Este es el fútbol de la ciudad mágica de Miami. This is Magic City Soccer. Let's go, Miami FC. This is Magic City Soccer. This is Magic City Soccer. Vamos, Miami. This is Magic City Soccer. This is Magic City Soccer. Este es el fútbol de la ciudad mágica de Miami. This is Magic City Soccer. This is Magic City Soccer, your home for everything you need to know about soccer in Miami-Dade County. Hello, soccer fans in South Florida and beyond, and welcome to our show. Uh, joining me today is Omar Mubayad. Omar, how you doing, pal? What's up, Matt? How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Man, um, so let me, let, let, before we jump into the soccer action, so I'm staring at a bottle in my hand here, right? Have you ever heard of this California Raspberry Coca-Cola? No. So I'm at Publix the other day, right? And I'm, at, I'm in the soda aisle, and I'm taking a look, and all of a sudden I see, you know, obviously this glass bottle Coke. And normally when you see glass bottle Coke in South Florida, it's safe to assume, you know, it's like Mexican Coke, right? You know, obviously real cane sugar, stuff like that. All of a sudden I'm looking at this bottle, and it looks like the old school, like see-through with like a green hue Coke bottle. However, it says California Raspberry on it. Dude, this is pretty delicious. So this is a standard, uh, like, issue Coke in a glass bottle that's flavored? Yep, flavored as raspberry. And then right next to it, although I didn't purchase it, which I'm now kind of kicking myself because I can't find it, is Georgia Peach Coca-Cola. Oh, I see it now. That's interesting. Um, I'm I'm down for a flavored Coca-Cola. I'm, I'm a big, uh, uh, you know, it's a freebie for the Coca-Cola Corporation. I'm a big fan of their uh, carbonated soda products. Uh, so, uh, so what, yeah. what's your favorite Coke flavor? If you had like the whole Porsche machine where you can pick, you know, 150 different styles of Coca-Cola, what, what for you would, is your go-to? What, what do you choose? Now, I have two, uh, uh, a mild take and a hot take on what you just said. One, oh, my favorite flavor of Coca-Cola is standard issue cherry uh, from a can uh, or from a fountain. Not okay. from a plastic bottle. Never plastic bottle. It's the worst. My second hot take, however, is those freestyle machines, while they are fun and interesting, they produce a substandard Coca-Cola product. And um, in fact, the only way that you can – and this is kind of a like a life hack. Uh, welcome to life hacks on soda. Um, the only way to get a, a – a good fountain soda out of those freestyle machines is to use the Coca-Cola app to make your own mix. And the mix can be very similar to what you would pour out of the machine. Uh, but I've learned that uh, the the way the soda is kind of mixed, um, mm-hmm. y- you, you get a lot of Coke Zero base uh, with sweetener instead of like standard issue Coca-Cola out of those machines when you press that button. And so oh. m- making your own mix with, through the app and then you just scan the little QR code or QC code, I forget. Um, that actually gets you what you need. So, huh. yeah. Um, there you go. Because uh, let me in- tell you, man. I will pound the cherry vanilla Coca-Cola. And I'm so pissed that cherry vanilla is not like a canned product. Not even a bottle product. It's not anything. They don't bottle it. They don't distribute it. It's only through that freestyle machine. I enjoy cherry vanilla. Uh, I do. That's my second favorite. And it's a nice change of pace when you see it. Like, you know, occasionally you'll see it in a bottle. Very, very rarely. And usually when I do, I'll, I'll buy it even though I don't like plastic bottle soda. Um, yeah, so I'm glad you're enjoying that. And again, uh, that's a freebie for the folks up in Atlanta. Um, for for the California Raspberry Coca-Cola. I didn't even know California was famous for the raspberries. Speaking of Atlanta. Aha! Speaking of Atlanta, did you see who Miami MLS hired, huh? Made it official. 
I did see, and, and that's uh, that's Omar Mubaye's long con right there. He knew where we were going the whole time. Uh, yes, Paul McDonough is the new sporting director. Uh, that's his title for Football Miami MLS. Team doesn't even have a name yet, but it does have a sporting director. Uh, McDonough is a bit of an expansion specialist. Um, he started off with Orlando uh, when they were making the jump to MLS when they were in the USL. Uh, after they got launched, he moved to Atlanta when they were getting set up uh, and was pretty critical in getting their uh, training ground operational as well as some player acquisitions. And as you're seeing with the success of Atlanta United uh, in MLS, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, he's now on to his third uh, grand opening of Major League Soccer coming down here to Miami. Yeah. Important to know that McDonough, you know, he's got coaching experience. And, and the other thing that he has is he's kind of got like the contractual experience. So if you look at his CV, essentially, he's been a coach at Wake Forest University. He's been a coach at South Carolina. But bef- after that, he did join the Wasserman Media Group, which represents a lot of players in MLS and overseas, namely Juan Agadello, Darren Maddox, Breck Shea, and so on and so forth. So it almost makes you wonder now, when you're bringing in a guy this talent, and he seems to be, to use a hockey sense, a builder. He seems to be the expansion builder of choice now for MLS. How much of his experience on the represented on the representation side of things, how does that help an MLS team kind of establish? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by his background um, because of the fact, like you said, he, he, he is kind of seen the sausage being made in pretty much every aspect of American soccer. He's been on the sidelines. He's been in the in in the the the, the owner's box, the kind of uh, upstairs office personnel. He's also represented players on that side. Uh, it was mentioned in Atlanta United's release yesterday that he was kind of their salary cap uh, ologist, if you will. The 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 Andy Ellisberg uh, for those of you that follow South Florida sports, the he's the heat capologist. Uh, uh, McDonough has been there. Expert in dealing with the the Tam and the Jam and whatever. Tam, other, Gam, Fam, Dam, Bam. Yes, thank you, Bam. Um, all the kind of different monetary concerns that MLS teams need to be aware of. He's kind of uh, schooled himself in that and um, and made Atlanta United better for it. So it's it's going to be interesting. It seems like a a, a good choice. Uh, I do feel like a story that we need to flesh out more. Um, that I'm curious about is is what happened to Tim Lewicki, um, which I might be butchering his name, but uh, he, he at one point, the former Toronto um, FC general manager, came on this ownership group as an advisor and then over the course of basically three years kind of faded away and is, appears to no longer be involved. I, I, I would very much like to know what happened to him because I thought that was the obvious choice that eventually when this team got started, he would be kind of piloting it, but obviously his disappearance into the background the last couple of years uh, would indicate that he wouldn't be in. And McDonough, again, if you're if you're an expansion club at MLS, you know there are going to be three or four more coming in over the next few years. Good for Miami for getting this guy now. Uh, before yeah, before anybody rush. else comes in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Before anybody yeah. comes in and tries to poach him uh, yeah. the way they did from Atlanta. And I think you brought up a good point with Tim Lewicki is essentially that you haven't seen his name in a press release. You haven't seen his name in a headline. Now, probably since the beginning of the year. So it almost makes you wonder, is he even involved with the project anymore? Was he one of the first, you know, we've heard Jorge Mas say things 
such as, you know, this project was going to die. And if it wasn't for our involvement or, or if it wasn't for Beckham reaching out to us and, you know, the commissioners and this and that, that it wasn't going to be, you know, this wasn't going to happen. And you almost wonder if Liwicki may have been the first one to, you know, see the writing on the wall at that point in time. Right. And say, listen, guys, it's been fun, but this isn't, you know, this is going to be a long road to nowhere. And, and he jumped ship and, you know, he might be kicking himself now for doing so. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I know he is, he, he's got his, his, you know, uh, fingers in a lot of different pies here. I know he stays busy across the sporting world, but yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. I'd, I'd like to, at some point, we'd like to find the, uh, the, the fuller flushed out story of that. But so McDonough is the man he has been brought in, um, to task with arguably the biggest, uh, expansion job that Major League Soccer has had and will ever have um, because this this is a, a big project. Obviously, Major League Soccer has dedicated five years. The ownership group has dedicated five years trying to get this right. Uh, and he's going to be tasked not only with, you know, signing the big, you know, designated player right. at some point that everyone's expecting and has been waiting for for half a decade, um, but also, you know, everyone has one eye on that Atlanta – uh, you know, developmental program that they have, and people in Miami are going to want that too. And that's been something that Jorge Mas has banged on over and over and over again, the idea that they're going to be developing youth talent, and God knows it exists here, down here in South Florida, and he's going to be the man that's basically tasked with taking these these disparate programs that exist throughout um, the Tri-County region and, and melding them together in some sort of unified program. Yeah, absolutely, and I mean, you kind of see his track record in a sense where, you know, if Orlando was his first building project, which all accounts seems like it was, yeah, maybe the results weren't there. But then you kind of look at the intricacies of everything and say, well, how much of that was tied to, you know, a caca that, that, that although was bright in small moments, wasn't bright over 90 minutes. And then, you know, you kind of learn from your mistakes at Atlanta. Or I'm sorry, I should say at Orlando when you come to Atlanta. And all of a sudden, your DPs are players that they're going to give you the full 90 minutes. They're going to be able to, uh, you know, create bright spots time and time again. And you've kind of seen this flip. And, and although the biggest similarity of the two would be the fact that both of these organizations, Atlanta and Orlando, are commercial successes. Their, their stadiums are packed. Their cities are diehard supporters. And they've embraced this team like no other. And it really makes you wonder how much of that you know, is a testament to McDonough himself. Uh, yeah, you know, there's there's definitely, uh, I know one of the first questions that we got on Facebook about the hire is how much of Atlanta United's success is McDonough, how much of it is credited to Carlos Bocanegra or, or the rest of the organization. Um, it's hard to tell. Anytime you have these group kind of projects, you know, even with the heat, um, you know, who are kind of the standard model in South Florida of like, oh, how you build stuff. Well, okay, the, that big three kind of uh, conglomeration that got put together, yeah, it was Pat Riley because he's Pat Riley, but also it was Dwayne Wade as a player being able to recruit, and it was Andy Ellisberg getting the cap numbers right and planning for two years basically to get expiring contracts at the right times. And, and so e- even if it's not all McDonough, at some point, no matter who you hire – they're going to have to form a collaborative relationship with someone to make it work. Um, so I, I think that, like I said, it's impossible to know. It's impossible to know if you've got the right guy. It's impossible to know if it's going to work out perfectly because, you know, 
we don't have 2020 foresight. We have 2020 hindsight. But it's it's kind of like playing the lottery when when you hire a general manager like that. And this is one where it seems you have the best chance to win. Well, absolutely. And I mean, you need to have people in charge with experience of the expansion draft because that's where the bulk of your players are going to come from. They're going to come from, you know, other teams in MLS that have chosen not to protect these individuals. And it's up to you as the sporting director, as the general manager to kind of identify, A, what team do you want to build? B, what style of play do you want to build around? And C, are those players identifiable in the expansion draft? Because, you know... Yes, while the DPs are going to make, obviously, you know, they're going to do more than probably everybody else combined. Now, I wouldn't say combined, but, you know, on an individual aspect, you can expect more out of them. That's the whole purpose of the designated player role. However, when you're in these expansion drafts and you need to select 20 guys and you got to figure out, you know, what style of play you want. You need to identify the right guys for your system because there's no point in getting the household name if he's not going to fit the system. Uh, yeah, and I think that's, you know, when, when you look at Atlanta and what he did, uh, they they really d- didn't, uh, you know, s- splash and get the big older name from Europe to, to make the engine run. Um, they they got foreign players and brought them in, but they were players that, that fit that, that system that, that Tata runs, and the results have been stupendous, and the crowds have been stupendous, and so... Atlanta does offer a kind of uh, the reverse of a cautionary tale. Uh, the idea that, yeah, you don't have to – there's not just one way for success for an expansion team. You know, you don't have to sign Kaká and hope that brings out 25,000 people. You can go another way. However, Miami does seem to have the resources available. You know, why not both? It does seem to have the, the resources available to find a manager who runs a coherent system, to have a general manager, sporting director in place who can find players for that system and do it all while running through, you know, a designated player that's going to bring some people out to watch the team. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And as we segue off MLS, because again, you know, Paul McDonough has been recently hired by the Miami MLS group to be the sporting director uh, for this expansion moving forward you know we still don't have a coach in place we still don't have a team name in place and i think a lot of the things that we can speculate on now you know while we could have these conversations it doesn't make sense until we see the technical staff come into play because we don't know what kind of style not every manager is going to want player x player y and player z but the one thing that i am curious about is that you know david beckham mentioned that there were players at real madrid that would want to come to MLS. And remember, there was one that was touted very secretively that, you know, he had an affirmation from one person saying, yes, I would come and play for your team. Now, is that player signed with Inter or linked with Inter? Is it Luka Modric? Maybe, maybe not. You know, it was a Karim Benzema. Possibly. Is it a Gareth Bale? Who knows? So, you know, all of these players are going to be fine. And, and all of those players, you can kind of essentially, you know, design your system around. But until you know who the manager is, you really don't know who you're going to target. So, you know, as we kind of close out this segment of the show, uh, it's super important to see kind of the building blocks and the way they lead. You know, obviously, everybody wants to know what the team name is. I mean, more than likely, we know already it's going to be Atletico Miami or some kind of form of Athletic Miami. Um, and, you know, everybody's waiting for the kick colors, which is more than likely going to be the one that will be the big reveal, the big mystery, because more than likely nobody's going to know uh, essentially which way they're going to steer. Uh, and yeah, all of that should be coming out, you know, in the next weeks to months per se. So it'll be interesting to see. But 
once we get into 2019 and the early stages, you know, you got to have a manager in place. You got to start signing some of these guys and you kind of have to start gearing up towards that expansion draft towards the end of 2019 or early 2020. So we can really see how this roster is going to take shape and have a better picture of the style of play and, you know, what's going to come. What can what we could expect from this Miami MLS team? Uh, I wholeheartedly agree. And I want to go back and actually cover uh, two things that came up. Uh, according to Jorge Mas, uh, the name is it should be the next thing to draft. Now, he's previously said that the sporting director, general manager, whatever you want to call it, would be announced at the end of August. We wound up getting it at the beginning of August. So these things are fungible. They, they change. Um, however, the the name he, he told me at Miami City Hall, middle of July, that the name would be in two to three weeks, which would mean we're basically in the window. Uh, that that basically sometime next week is when that announcement should come down. Uh, the second thing I wanted to mention is you mentioned Beckham mentioning a player at Real Madrid mm-hmm. who had great interest in playing in Miami. I will tell you that Jorge Mas told the Miami Herald editorial board that there was a Croatian national player who had a great interest in playing for well, Miami. There you go. And so at some point, if you you know you do the overline and the overlap. You would figure that Modric would be the would perhaps be the player uh, that they have targeted. Now, could there be two separate players? Perhaps, but I mean, at some at some point, that that is a name that you you would figure the connections are there uh, enough where you you start paying attention and seeing how that develops. No, uh, absolutely. I mean, you're looking at a guy though, 32 years old, going to be 34 roughly by the time the league starts up in 2020. So, you, you know, and then all of a sudden you have now him being linked with Inter. So how may, how long of a contract will he sign with Inter will be another thing. So while for now, Luka Modric, you know, may want to have his sights set on Miami MLS, is it still on the table? We don't know. That's why I brought it up. Yes. The, the other interesting point regarding him is the news that uh, came out yesterday uh, from Real Madrid president Florentino Perez, uh, who said that Modric would only leave Real Madrid for 750 million euro. Uh, so uh, and I'm, I'm quite sure that's an exaggeration, but uh, yeah, at, 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 at some point that number is going to have to come a little bit down uh, for Miami to have any hope of getting him uh, into the squad. Um, so speaking of international soccer, uh, uh, international club soccer, uh, we're coming off the World Cup. Players are returning with their teams, and uh, South Florida has played a pretty big part in that with our participation in the International Champions Cup. Absolutely. So we had four massive match fixtures, or I should say game days, essentially, with six matches. Match days, right? With six fixtures across them. Two doubleheaders, especially when it comes to the Women's International Champions Cup tournament, uh, where you saw a semifinal and a final take place, as well as two big friendlies, uh, the first being contested between Bayern Munich and Manchester City, and obviously, you know, the... um, Excuse me. Uh, the heavyweight, you know, prize fight main event, which was contested between Manchester United and Real Madrid. And, and Matt, if I have to say so myself, you know, if I were to put my Manchester United allegiances aside for a second, I think the most impressive and the most entertaining soccer came from that women's tournament this last week. Uh, yeah, it was fantastic. Um, we were out there. I was out there for the the first match day. The semifinals, and Omar, you were there as well for both of the women's tournament days. I was in Michigan to see another ICC match, Liverpool versus Man U. Um, but that first game 
that first semifinal uh, between PSG and North Carolina Courage. Uh, it was fantastic. It was it was a really great game. The second game got got a little bit away because uh, uh, Olympic uh, are a really quality team, and Man City just couldn't quite hang with them. Um, but that first game, and then the the third place game and the championship game, yeah, it was really it was fantastic, uh, fun football. That's the only way to put it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the North Carolina Courage, uh, especially in that semifinal match against. Paris Saint-Germain, um, they really showed that the NWSL was not to be taken lightly. And while sometimes you can kind of see the NWSL maybe not be taken as seriously just because the growth of women's soccer on CONCACAF is still way behind where it is in Europe, um, you don't see kind of like a women's champions league. You don't see any of those tournaments take place. So, you know, while the United States still, is still the front runner with regards to women's soccer, um, you know, it was still going to be an uphill battle. It wasn't going to be easy, especially considering that the North Carolina Courage had about five or six uh, ladies on international duty for the Tournament of Nations that just so happened to be taking place that same week. Um, and then, as you mentioned, the Olympic Lyon um, match against Manchester City. I mean, it, just basically a, a showcase for Lyon showing kind of how competitive and how good they are a lot of the times you're watching these ladies connect passes and and make certain moves and you're just thinking like your jaw drops because you're not expecting it and it's just more along the lines of you know even if it were two men's teams out there it would still be the same reaction just because it was effortless it was synced so well together and as you went into the finals match uh or into the final fixture date for the Women's International Cup where you had the third place game in the final, you saw it again and you saw the North Carolina Courage find a way to hold up against the five-time, five let me say that one more time, five-time Champions League women's, uh, you know, champions uh, in, in Olympic Lyon. And it's really incredible to kind of see NWSL kind of put a rubber stamp on the fact that they belong just at the top or they belong i should say i'm sorry they belong at the top with the rest of the teams throughout europe when it comes to you know competitive women's football uh yeah it was it was really dynamite i think i'm i'm looking forward to seeing it next year uh now that they've kind of gotten the first one under their belts i wonder if it'll stay in miami or go somewhere else uh to kind of tour around uh, we know that RSC are based in Miami. The tournament is kind of basically based in Miami. Um, but yeah, I, I do feel like the next task for the International Champions uh, Cup uh, in, for this tournament is really to focus on marketing uh, because there were a number of people who basically were seeing our reporting on it uh, on Twitter. And, and even though we had written about it before, we're saying, wait, this is happening? What is this? I would have gone to this. Uh, I I do think that there there is a real opportunity. There there Americans will watch and support women's soccer. That is unquestionable. That is an unquestionable Absolutely. truth. Uh, and so especially if it's top tier uh, competition. Um, and so I think that they need to market and they need to get people out there. I, they need to make people aware of it because people will get out there. I mean, it's just sad because. It was such a good value, you know what I mean? And it was yeah. sad. And, and maybe it just came down to budget and maybe it came down to the fact that they wanted to give this a trial run and they were going to bite the bullet just to see organically how many people would come up and, sh- and, and show up and support. But it was sad to see how empty the stadium was in the sense that they were really only selling six or seven sections, which was, you know, the north sideline. 
and, and that was about it. And it, it wasn't even attended, you know, with great figures. You know, I get it. I understand, you know. But either way, they didn't even put up bad dates for the tournament. They played one match on a Sunday, if I'm not mistaken. And you played the other match on a Thursday night in the middle of the summer with no school. And you were only charging $10 to get in for two matches. So for the people that went to the tournament, I, you know, you definitely have an applause for me. Um I think you really showed up and you really showed that this tournament can be a success. Uh, aside from the skill level and aside from the talent that was on display. Because if they were to put any kind of bare bones effort into marketing that event, I think you probably could have gotten at least close to five to 10,000 people to show up. And next year is going to be difficult because you do have the Women's World Cup being contested. So what's going to be the situation with the women's tournament? Is it going to take a break? Is it going to... You know, come back with maybe just NWSL teams. Is it going to come back with perhaps an even bigger number of teams, possibly expand the field from four to eight and play the games, you know, as you mentioned, on a tour in a sense, you know, rotated across a couple of different cities? I'm selfish. I would like to see every game to come to Miami uh, because of the quality of soccer that I was able to witness. And like I said, I really think it was probably one of the better displays of soccer throughout the entire showcase. Uh, yeah, I think actually next year it, it's a great opportunity for the the women's game after the World Cup uh, to really highlight club soccer. And I think that's been uh, a weakness on the part of the 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 soccer infrastructure in the United States is is the uh, channeling support for women's soccer. Which I'm liter- I literally have last night's tournament of nations game between the United States and Brazil up right now. Likewise, I think they're playing that one in in, in uh, Chicago. Right, um, they played it at Chicago, and yeah, it's a packed house. You know what I mean? So like, it, it, pe- people love their U.S. women's national team, uh, but then we come home to uh, you know support. Certainly, it, it, it's it's better than it was after say '99. Where that first major women's league formed and didn't find success, the 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 NWSL is finding success, particularly in Portland and Orlando and and those those markets which are becoming soccer markets. It is finding success, but it, they're going to want it to take the next step. And I think that this International Ch- Champions Cup tournament next year after the World Cup can be the kind of second trampoline. You know, the World Cup's the first one. You know, from trampoline to trampoline, I think seeing our teams compete against international competition, uh, which we really don't do even in the men's game. Uh, the MLS, like our all-star team, plays a European side, but that's kind of it, really. Uh, seeing our women's teams go up against, you know, the big names of Man City and PSG, I think it just gives a little bit more uh, credence and... and, and uh, legitimacy not not again not that a competition needs it it has it by the number of players but for people who aren't super familiar with club women's soccer it gives it just that little bit more legitimacy that it might need yeah you're absolutely right and off the heels of the world cup you know it's going to be a big question as to how quickly can these players recover uh because i asked uh, the leon coach as well as i said you know i obviously i obviously understand that next summer is going to be quite hectic especially with the women's world cup but you know would leong be willing to come back to a tournament like this especially to carry such a weight as being the five-time women's champions league you know champion um and he said absolutely that it's important these kinds of showcases are important 
for women's soccer in order to keep growing the sport and growing the game and growing the interest. And, you know, if we can expand next year's tournament to eight teams, per se, uh, and get some of every, not even the fans, I was going to say the girls, but not even the girls, but get fans of soccer to get up close and personal with some of these players that they're going to be seeing, you know, on a weekly basis, essentially, during this Women's World Cup, it's going to be huge. It'll be huge for the game. It'll be huge for the sport. And it'll do nothing but at least at a minimum help the domestic league out, especially if the games are going to be here. And you might see a push where if Miami MLS is coming to town, hey, you might see an, uh, a conversation start with how about getting an NWSL team in town too? Uh, I definitely think that's the next point of pressure that soccer fans down here really need to hit on. Once once uh, M- the MLS ownership group has kind of found their footing uh, when is when is that women's team coming? Uh, because it, there is, you know, w- when you have a World Cup starting goalkeeper serving as the backup keeper for the University of Miami's uh, Division One women's team, uh, there is talent in South Florida on both the men's and the women's side. Thick, thick talent down here, and uh, there again, there's no reason why that that youth academy it should it should be developing women's players too. Um, and and I think that as you see the growth of the women's game internationally, it is one of the few areas where the United States and, and, and this team can lead in the world of soccer instead of following in the world of soccer uh, because you are seeing a growth of the women's game in Europe uh, over the last five, six years, markedly so compared to the previous 20 years uh, where, where basically Europe's starting to wake up to what women's soccer can be. And the United States, while it's still the dominant force, you know, it it it, it will be challenged by this rise, but it also be, will benefit from this rise because there's parity. And the United States really competing with the best of the best internationally, uh, that's going to get everyone's attention. And oh. and Miami can be a real kind of cornerstone, not only for American soccer development, but for development of the women's game in Central and South America. Yeah, absolutely. And it's always going to be a success commercially as well, which is one of the things that you know, should be pointed out time and time again. Now, um, on the men's side of things, you had essentially the tournament, or I should say the showcase kickoff with Manchester City taking on Bayern Munich. Manchester City getting the better of Bayern Munich, coming back in the game from a two-goal deficit to win 3-2 to two on three straight goals. And you saw positivity. That That's the word I want to say for Manchester City. Because while we're sitting in the Pep Guardiola press conference, or I should say standing, um, it was positivity. Didn't have anything negative to say about his players. Didn't have anything negative to say about the tournament. Didn't have anything negative to say about the opposition. It was more along the lines of getting his players to grow. Did you get that same sense from you know the way Pep Guardiola handled the ICC in general? Yeah, I think that, look, in a year where the World Cup is happening, um, this was always going to be a tournament that struggled to get the absolute best of the best talent compared to say last year where you you did have you know uh Real Madrid and Barcelona uh you know Sans Cristiano Ronaldo but you you had some big names coming and playing in Miami and you had big names elsewhere but with so many players you know on World Cup duty uh coming off World Cup duty um it was always going to be tough, and so the the approach of the managers here, I think, is uh, for almost everyone: um, put on a good show, g- get your guys a little bit of run, uh, 
put out some young guys who you think have a chance to contribute months or years down the road and get out without a major injury. And I think that for Man City and for, for most of the other teams uh, here, I think it, 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 it would have to be classified as a success. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and one thing that I want to say, one thing that, that I was completely taken aback by was City's PR department. And, and and what I mean by PR is not necessarily like press release. or anything. I, I just mean the way that they handle their fans, the way they're willing to interact with their fans, the way that they're willing to go the extra mile, it seems like, for people who support that crest and that club. And I have not seen anything of that magnitude at all uh, within our time uh, covering professional soccer, uh, especially down here. I haven't seen it, and I and I never thought I would see it from a club as big as Manchester City. And Matt, we've talked about this time and time again, especially the last week. I was absolutely floored by the way that Manchester City treated their supporters because they went the extra mile for them. They allowed, they brought their trophies. They were on full display the entire time that they were in Miami. They made multiple events open to open to their supporters to get to connect with their supporters who you know may have traveled here from England, but a lot of their people from the United States that support Manchester City and they were in town for that. And after the match was over, you saw a basically an autograph line. And obviously, you know the ramifications of how that happened. Who knows? It could have been. 20 people, you know, it could have been luck of the draw. It could have been everybody who's a city supporter or part of the city fan club, things like that. But they took their time. I saw player after player taking their time signing autographs left and right, which is something that uh, apparently Bayern Munich did as well with regards to their practices and with their events, but not at the stadium and something that I didn't see from Real Madrid and from Manchester United. Uh, I think, and as you said, we we. We, we do a podcast without turning on the microphones. We we just talk and, and discuss these things sometimes. The stupid uh, straight. Yeah. You know, we're, we're always on and slightly off. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that Man City, in, in that respect, uh, benefits – the fans of Man City benefit from – and they're going to think it's a backhanded compliment. It's not because, obviously, where the team is positioned right now is, is superior to almost anyone in European football. But Man City's fans benefit from that kind of, I think, uh, little brother uh, persona um, where, you know, Man United is obviously the big brother in the equation um, where we have to do more. We have to do more than they do. We got to be better for the fans because that's what we're about. We're about the fans. We're not about the, you know, the, the, the corporate name, whatever. We're about the fans. And so even though it's a club that's owned by multi-billionaires – and has spent X number of hundreds of millions of pounds in transfers, blah, blah, blah. I do think there's still a bit of that uh, little brother mentality within the operation of the of the club. And it's it's the little brother who, you know, dropped 50 pounds of fat, put on 25 pounds of muscle, <laughs> and got the job on Wall Street. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. I, yeah I'm the little brother, but now I'm going to kick your ass. Uh, and I think that's that's kind of the, the, the perspective that they're coming from, and it, it benefits – uh, Man City fans, I mean, I'll tell you from my experience going to uh, the Liverpool match against Man United, um, I, I told you over the phone, it, it was run as though it were a Liverpool home match um, it, as a friendly, where there was a huge kind of fan zone where there were former players who had come and traveled to the United States um, to kind of participate in like an on-site thing. Uh, players uh, came up to fans after the match uh, outside the coach, um, out the bus, um, 
and, and kind of interacting with uh, people. Not everybody, but a lot of big players. Mohamed Salah uh, did it once, went on the bus, came back out again. Uh, Jurgen Klopp shook some hands, took some pictures. Um, you know, I think there is that w- when you are – when you're not the, the – and I'm going to praise Manchester United for a second and, and may God strike me down <laughs> uh, by lightning. But, like, when you're the, when you're the big guy, uh, you know, y- y- your, your service to your fans is winning. And that's what it is. And so everyone else kind of has to go the extra mile. You know what right. I mean? It's I kind of like the idea of like, oh, I'm a restaurant and I'm starting out in town and there's a big steakhouse that everyone goes to because it's so good. Okay, well, our service has to be a little bit better. And our, you know, appetite and our bread has to be better. And our, we have got to try to be – we've got to outdo them because right. that's the benchmark. And Manchester United over the last 25 years has become the benchmark in, in, in English soccer and, and largely in, in European soccer. And so it's a credit to them, but – Either that winning has to continue or they're going to have to kind of wiggle out a little bit. Real Madrid's the same thing. Obviously, they've won three Champions Leagues in a row. If you're a fan of Real Madrid, you take what you get and you like it. You know oh, what I mean? Absolutely. We, we, Listen, absolutely. I, I agree completely. I just think um, I think what I saw from City was absolutely exceptional uh, in the way that they catered to their fan base. Where and, and as you mentioned, perhaps the mindset for some of the bigger clubs, you know, such as... And, and again, this is not like a backhanded compliment to City, even though I'm a United fan. Um, I'm not, I don't put it as City as a second-rate club or anything like that. But, you know, United didn't go the extra mile for their supporters, I, I, I don't believe. And I, and I don't believe that Real Madrid did either. Although I, I am going to say if they did, I will plead ignorance completely because I didn't follow any of the of the Real Madrid, you know, events that were going on throughout the city. Maybe there were many, and I know that they were training here quite often, so perhaps a lot of fans were able to experience things, you know, up close and personal. But for Manchester United, you didn't see that. And and it's kind of disheartening in a sense. And and while I understand that they were this was the last leg of their tour in the United States and more than likely they're homesick and they want to get back, but man, you know, if you don't live in California and you don't go to the first couple training sessions, you don't, you know, if you're in Miami and you're an East Coast supporter and this is the only match you could make, you couldn't, you couldn't interact. You could not interact with the guys that you watch, you know, every weekend on TV and you wake up early for and, and things of that nature. And it's a little disheartening, uh, to, to, to be quite honest. And, you know, but I, I guess that's just kind of the nature of the beast, right? Uh, I would, yes, I would agree wholeheartedly. And can we talk about Jose Mourinho for a second? Sure. Okay, great. Uh, and again, I'm kind of repeating what I've talked about in in our private podcast uh, that isn't recorded. But um, I think that, and, and and you said in our conversation, and it is important to note, Jose Mourinho has a very specific responsibility, and he is he is fulfilling that responsibility to what he believes are the best of his abilities. Uh, but you, as a club, and it, it goes to the heart of what you were talking about, with Man City. As a club, your responsibility as a club overall, everyone's responsibility is to the fans, first and foremost. And if you're the first team manager, that responsibility means are you winning or are you losing? Are you bringing home silverware? Are you advancing the club or not? But at some point, the manager also has to be cognizant and aware of the PR uh, staff's responsibilities and everyone else's responsibilities. And at some point, it's it things need to be in service to the fans. And when you tell your own fans that they should not have spent the money to watch your team play, it, it's, an, it's an insult. It's an insult to, to the club and its fans, and it's an insult to the sport. 
And yes, I know it's a friendly. And yes, I know you're you're not putting out your your best players. And that's fine. No one's going to come and attack you. Oh my God, you lost. I was there and I was super happy because I'm a Liverpool fan and obviously. But I would not have been like, wow, Jose Mourinho really freaking sucks. They lost 4-1, you know. That's not on him. I I saw the lineups. I saw the players that were coming out. Uh, He was not favored and that's okay. Use the game to advance your club and use the game to advance your players. And and as you said, you sat in a room with Pep Guardiola and heard him talk about competing here in Miami. Uh, and, and Mourinho brought a lot of the same BS in a winning effort to Miami, where it's just like, come on, dude. Like, like fans are coming. You may not think they should, but keep it to yourself because these people have put out hundreds of dollars to make sure their kids can come out and watch players in that shirt that you represent. And it's just – it's it's – it's an insult. It's an insult. And if, if you think that, oh, the ICC, it's a big money grab, and well, that's fine. And you're entitled to that opinion, soccer fan listening to our podcast. You're totally entitled because it is kind of a money grab. But it is also a way to help grow these clubs in this country. Absolutely. And, and at some point, if you care about soccer here, you've probably picked up a club along the way. And the ability to go and watch them play in your hometown or in your country with people that you know, like, you know, going to Michigan... There were – I saw 15 people from, from South Florida that I knew from watching games, see, seeing them in the stadium, meeting up with them. You know, That's what it's about. That's what this all is about. Oh, it's sure. about enabling fans to connect and support something they care about. And it, it's just so it, – it, it, it's a real sting to hear that from someone who is participating in it. But here's the thing. So on Tuesday night during his press conference, he had nothing but – you know, the kindest words to say about the tournament, about Charlie Satilitano, uh, about the organizers from Relevant. He he absolutely said left and right that they put on a world-class tournament every year and he's happy to be involved in the tournament every year. He said that, and, and in a very kind of maybe realized that after the game in Ann Arbor, he, he may have took it a little too far. You know, he did basically state that he, you know, he didn't apologize for the fact that they couldn't bring the senior team, but he put it out there. It's, you know, this is a World Cup, you know, summer. Most of our players made the final four of, of the World Cup, and a lot of the guys are on vacation. He praised the guys that came back early. Lingard and Rashford were at the match. Did they play? No, they were sitting in a box somewhere, but they were at the match. A lot of guys cut their summers early to rejoin the team obviously to more than likely gear up and play that opening contest against Leicester City in the Premier League on August 10th but at the same time you know I I I understand where you're coming from and and as we talked about it that one day and over lunch you know I completely agree with you he his his responsibility as the Manchester United manager is for the senior team. He's not responsible for the under-23s. He's not responsible for the under-18s. He's not responsible for the under-16s, etc. His responsibility is for the senior team. Maybe part of it was the embarrassment that the fact that, you know, he had to bring a lot of youth players on this tour. And he was maybe letting down Manchester United fans who wanted to see the Paul Pogba's of the world. And, and everybody understands, obviously, that those guys can't come. Everybody gets it. Everybody understands it. But I think it was just more of a sense of trying to vocalize his opinion and and defending why he brought out what he did. During Tuesday's press conference, he mentioned more than once that the under-23 team for Manchester United got relegated from the top under-23 league in England. They're now playing in the second division because they just weren't good enough. 
And those were most of the kids that he had to bring on tour with him, you know. So maybe perhaps that kind of sparked the fire. It just ended up being, you know, the perfect ingredients for a Molokov cocktail and it spontaneously combusted and he had to throw it. You know what I mean? And, And while I understand I'm not defending necessarily his statements and his actions because I agree with you completely. I think that these are the only times where the average supporter... You know, the middle class supporter for most of these European clubs. Listen, the chances that any of us are going to get to go to England or to Europe or to Spain, or should, you know, obviously Europe over encompassing, but England, Spain, France, Germany, wherever you support Italy, you know, your club from, it's hard. It's not easy. It's a financial sacrifice. And then you got to have to have a partner if you are in a relationship that's going to let you sp- A, spend the money and take B, time out of the vacation to attend one of these events. It's not easy. It's a sacrifice on all parts. And this is what the ICC has been built to bridge necessarily. You know what I'm saying? Like make it easier for the average middle class person to watch a match with their heroes, the people they wake up for, you know, on the weekends early in the morning and and support for. And and they've done a fantastic job and you know, I'm blessed to say that I was able to watch the Manchester United-Liverpool match that happened in 2014. And I I went as a spectator. And this time, I was able to work all of the matches, all six contests, as a member of the media. And, and, you know, to to be able to see these teams and these quality of talent come to the city. You know, and it could be any major American city. But to come to the United States and put their talents on display, there is nothing to be but eternally grateful to Relevant and to the ICC tournament because... Otherwise, it just wouldn't happen. Otherwise, it would just be something that you watched on TV. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I guess that's my whole point. If if Jose Mourinho had said after the first game, like, hey, guys, look who we got. It's it's our, our young kids, and, you know, we're not – we're aware that the, our ability to compete is is not going to be as great as we normally would be able to, but the guys get to have some run, and we get to kind of, you know, show the shirt off and, and show face to American fans. And left at that – that's a totally reasonable thing to say. Totally reasonable. Like, yep, yeah, we're not, we're not who we normally are, and it's unfortunate for the fans. But we're going to go out and put forth as much effort as we have, and put forth as many names as we have, so they can say that they saw Juan Mata or 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 who you know Jesse Lingard or whoever. That's great. That's great. It's it's just all about attitude. And again, it's not like he's the only manager that had to deal with this. You know, Man City were light. Liverpool were stronger well, sure. than 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 Man U, but but still were playing. You know, basically their fifth string goalkeeper um, at this point. Um, it, it, it that's such as the life of a of a friendly of a preseason friendly. You know what I mean? It, so that that just it really got under my crawl. And for for how much the the tournament I feel like has been good for Miami in particular, and has been good for club soccer in the United States in general. To, to be who he is and to come in and basically just dump all over it, you know. For sure. No, 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 for I, sure, 100%. I, yeah. You know, I, and I think, I God, you know, it, it's selfish because we are based down here and, you know, we want to see all of the games happen here. I mean, in a perfect ideal setting, you know, you base a tournament in Miami and you run it every night for two weeks, you know what I mean? Right, yeah. But, I, you know, I hope that we see a differentiation of clubs come in because this is Real Madrid's second time in two years coming here. Um, you know, Manchester United has now this is their second appearance in four years. And, you know, uh, Bayern Munich, I believe it played here was the first time since the mid 90s. Um, 
But I, I kind of want to see the differentiation of clubs. I want, I know this is going to sound really weird, but I, I want Chelsea supporters, I want Arsenal supporters, especially the ones based, you know, in the city and based in South Florida, to get a, to have a chance to see their team. Because, like I said, I've, I've been lucky enough to to be the two of these Manchester United matches, and I wouldn't trade them for the world. Uh, and, and I want other people to be able to experience that because it is an unbelievable experience, especially with, you know, all of the hardships that would come from trying to make an international trip happen for a family or for just a person to, you know, get on an eight-hour flight and attend a match uh, to whatever club they support. Yeah, I definitely think that it, it, if, if Relevant Sports is listening, um, Arsenal... I think would have to be the next club you tried to target to bring down here because it has the second largest organized club support down here. Now, I'm not saying there are as many Arsenal fans as there are Barcelona fans, but in terms of actual kind of built-in structure of support for uh, the, the team, Miami Arsenal Supporters Club is enormous, and, and only Peña of Real Madrid is bigger than it. Right. I, I think that they would put on a good show down here. Uh, a, a good, you know, a good representation down here. But yeah, I, I think that you, you know, we, we have been, you know, the word you said was blessed and it's really true to think of the clubs. You've seen Real Madrid twice. You've seen uh, in the last, basically going back to the pre-ICC era, but involving relevant, um, you've seen Barcelona twice because uh, they played Chivas down here right. in 2011. Right, Juventus, um, Bayern Munich, PSG. Yes, yeah, you've seen, you've seen a tremendous number of names. I mean, really the only... Big, big names that have come over but haven't come to Miami. I'm, I'm thinking Borussia Dortmund, um, Chelsea. Arsenal, um, yeah. Arsenal. I mean, Liverpool Tottenham. haven't made well, – Liverpool came in 2014, but right. it wasn't a, a formal appearance. They they advanced to the finals of the tournament, and that the final was held here. Of course, the format's no longer like that. Um, but, yeah, so you, you, you have – you've had a number of those big, big names – already scheduled and, and so you're now getting to the point where you're like oh well who who have we left off uh you know you know one of the milan teams maybe yeah absolutely uh, a couple english teams and that's kind of it right N- napoli a couple english teams you know you, you could maybe pull a couple extra teams from from spain and and i think a big thing as well is that you know miami and and, and listen i'm gonna say this is gonna be a knock to miami fc but miami fc has absolutely screwed the pooch when it comes to international friendlies they've absolutely dropped the ball where we've seen lower division sides including nasl sides in the past and usl sides manage international friendlies against mid-tier first division and high-end second division opponents from europe and that's just another way to keep driving you know the game in south florida uh, and and really anywhere else. You've seen Cincinnati do it. You've seen North Carolina FC do it. You've seen, you know, all of these clubs that you compete with on a general basis uh, and, and are of the same stature as your club. Get these fixtures. You've seen them. You've seen Miami United on a lesser extent. Granted, most of them were closed-door scrimmages, but get scrimmages, even if it's against the freaking junior team or the reserve team of, of you know, Boca Juniors or River Plate, things like that. They're managing to get these matches done. And Miami FC is not doing it. And they're they're not doing it. And it creates a barrier and a hole and, and, and almost a desire to want to see some of these teams come to town and, and square off against your opponents. Because realistically speaking, you know, somebody can go and make a, a, a deal with Aston Villa no problem. I'm sure Aston Villa would love to come here for a summer break and play a contest or two. You know, get a game against Fulham. Get a game against Queen Park Rangers. It doesn't have to be the top end, but the fact that you're bringing these teams in 
says a lot. It's funny you mention uh, Aston Villa. Um, uh, uh, It's funny you mention that idea of those second-tier teams uh, coming to Miami because last season there was, uh, uh, I believe it was Crystal Palace, who came to Miami basically during an international break. Right. Uh, uh, David, Mo- the David Moyes is managing Crystal Palace, right? Because it mm-hmm. was the team that David Moyes is managing. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, they were here for basically a week, um, and and they're they're a name in English soccer. You know what I mean? They're 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 not Manchester United, but they're they're a bigger name. And yeah, wh- why why aren't you working out a way to 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 square off against them? Uh, e- you know, even if it's at St. Thomas and you're getting 500 fans, you're raising the profile of the club. Yeah, you're, you're, absolutely. You're putting it on more equal footing with some of the bigger names. And a, a, as you said, if you can't get a, a, a big club to come to Miami, you don't have any kind of pull because they want to come to Miami. There's a reason why this tournament is basically based in Miami. And there's a reason why Miami has gotten some of, if not the biggest matchups in the ICC is because these teams and these players want, want to, to come here. here. They want to be they, here. Yes, they want to come here. And so... I definitely think the the next thing I, I know Miami FC have a hundred different things on its short list, but especially because you are playing this short season this year, uh, and you're basically only getting three months worth of games, which we'll talk about the conclusion of that schedule in a second. Uh, you got to figure out a way to get some international friendlies and put them at Ricardo Silva or put them somewhere where where people will come. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we're probably too late in the year now for that to, to, to realistically happen. Unless you pull aside from essentially the Russian Premier League or you pull aside from, you know, essentially the Irish uh, Premier League or the Irish, for, uh, what's it called? The, I uh, can't remember their name. The Irish LOI or something, something of the sort. And get a team like Cork City or Dundalk to come in. Teams that have Champions League pedigrees. And, and necessarily what I mean by pedigree is not, you know, the fact that they've advanced and won anything. But more along the lines of they've entered group stages before. They've qualified as of that point. you got to kind of be able to, you know, expand and, and, and show that these things are possible down here. And it's possible for the fans to have a treat and even if you get bombasted 5-0 like that's fine it doesn't reflect negatively your fans aren't going to take away a 5-0 scoreline they're going to take away that experience of oh i remember when Miami FC played x y and z you know what i mean agreed absolutely agreed all right mpso action let's do this yeah so saving the best for last year saving the 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 kind of uh what's next on the calendar coming forward uh we have a national championship to play for uh in this town even though it won't actually be taking place in this town it'll be taking place in morristown new jersey but the miami fc2 have advanced to the npsl national championship game it is the second time a team based in miami will have an opportunity to win uh a national championship in this league uh miami united uh lost uh i believe chattanooga in 2015 um, it is Miami FC versus FC Motown, uh, Motown being short for Morristown, not for any connection to Detroit. Correct. Uh, Omar, this is a, it's a big game. It's a big game. And, and FC Motown, while they aren't say Detroit city, speaking of Motown, uh, and, and they aren't Chattanooga and they aren't so, so the bigger names that you're familiar with regarding, uh, NPSL soccer, they have talent. They do have talent. And that's probably one of the bigger things that you have to worry about if you're Miami FC. 
to this point, you've been knocking out essentially college freshmen, college sophomore that have been playing, you know, in this MPSL as kind of like the precursor to their college season. FC Motown is not of that caliber. FC Motown does have notable players such as Dilly Duca. The Golden Ball winner did come from FC Motown, Matt Negro as well. So you've got players that here, they can contribute. And at the same time, you know, Miami FC has been able to dime and dust their opponents away. They've been able to shut the game out early, get the early goals in the first half, and and, and kind of show their quality as with, I'm sorry, I should say, I'm sorry, with regards to how they treat these matches. They're professionals playing in a league that is beneath them. And we've seen that kind of backfire in them from time to time. But against this FC Motown match, this is probably their closest competition that they've played this season with the exception of the Jacksonville Armada. Uh, Yeah, and that's what intrigues me about the matchup. You mentioned the Armada is when we previewed that game, when we did our our live podcast outside the Bob, uh, you know, we talked about how we were worried about playing against Jacksonville and and the talent they were going to bring and it's pro versus pro and and then Miami FC 2 answered the bell thoroughly and totally and completely and so while Motown is going to present that kind of challenge as well yeah if Miami FC 2 aren't ready for this when they they were never going to be ready and they have been ready they've been ready against Jacksonville they've been ready against you know a game Atlanta side uh I think the only thing that could hurt them is the and I no offense to Duluth but I think the the as the playoffs have have grinded on here I think the quality of opposition that they faced has not increased it's it stayed the same or, or slightly decreased as you go from Jacksonville to Atlanta to Duluth um and, and you wonder if if FC Motown or have maybe been kind of uh, you know sharpened by steel uh in, in their playoff run whereas Miami FC have basically been waiting around for this game yeah absolutely and I mean the list goes on and on when you really try to dive into this Motown roster you see guys that you know may not be the first ones to pop in your head but another guy Julius James on defense who played for the strikers for if I'm not mistaken at least a season you know, you look at these guys coming in and, and you look at their roster and you say, okay, well, wait a second. These are guys with experience. There's a reason FC Motown got past the teams they got past. You know what I mean? They didn't have an yeah. easy road necessarily to get here where Miami FC didn't have the most difficult road. If we're going to be quite honest, whether it was Little Rock, whether it was the Atlanta Silverbacks or whether it was Duluth, you saw from the 15th minute that this game should not be a contest. It shouldn't be. In all, in, in all respect to all three of those teams, Miami FC was clearly the dominant team because of their talent, because of their experience. Now you've got a team that's got similar levels of talent, maybe not as much, but a similar level of experience. And it's going to be really important to compose yourself and expect really what you haven't expected all year. Because more than likely, you've been coming to these games saying, okay, we're playing a side that we really don't know against. We're playing a side with, you know... They're going to do things differently than what I'm used to because most professional teams are kind of cut from the same cloth. You know what I mean? Uh, and now when you're playing a team here that is something that, that you should have been used to or something that you were used to seeing, now you've got to adjust your mentality. You've got to say, okay, we got to play a more structured game. We can't look to take as many risks, arguably, as we did in the past. And how much is that going to affect Paul Dalglish's tactics? That's yet to be seen, but we'll definitely find out in just about 24 hours. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely going to be a a something I have my eye on as the game kicks off is how, what is what is Coach Douglas's tactical adjustments 
when facing this kind of team. Again, we saw against Jacksonville, the, the, the game plan against Jacksonville is slightly different than the game plan against Little Rock, uh, let's say. And, and a big part of that is it, the, the long ball play. Uh, that, that has been a point of conversation throughout the season. Uh, defenders basically kind of skipping the midfield and kind of launching it up top uh, to attacking players. Uh, part of that has been to basically avoid kind of injury, avoid uh, kind of bumping up against uh, some midfielders that may be a little bit less uh, technical acumen than what Miami FC 2 may have right. uh, and, and putting forth challenges that you may not normally see. Um, Motown probably shouldn't have to worry about that. You, you should have a, a kind of more straightforward game. Um, the, the second thing to see is is what what configuration are we going to line up in? What configuration are you going to put your attacking players in? And will that change and evolve now that you're actually going to be able to see FC Motown up close and personal? Yeah, I, I just think, honestly, you kind of have to go with what's worked here along the way. You kind of have to use the guys that get, that have got you here at least to start the match for the first 45 minutes. You know, arguably, you've probably got one of the better defensive cores in the league. Um, you know, Sam McFarland, you know, if we had to be hypercritical and say, is there a question mark on the fence? It, you know, possibly could be Sam McFarland, um, who's actually been out, nothing less than outstanding, uh, you know, at right back here, filling in for Don Smart, who's been out on injury for the past yeah. few weeks. And then... That that's really you know what you have to look at you know you know what you're going to get from Trafford and Bernstein we've seen match in and match out what you're going to get from Tyler Pollock you know have Trafford and Bernstein made mistakes this year absolutely but this may not be a match where you have FC Motown pressing 90 minutes the way a Miami United would trying to make them uncomfortable and force them into the bad areas because what happens if Motown were to press too high Bernstein and Trafford have enough quality to beat that press and all of a sudden it's all hands on deck for Miami FC and you can see a counter coming off rather easily. Um, but, it, you know, the question really is going to become, does Miami FC go out wide again? Is that what FC Motown's going to do? Because for every team that's allowed Miami FC to kind of operate on the flanks, they've been destroyed left and right. You saw it in all of the matches. And we've talked about it with Miami FC broadcaster Carter Krishnayer is the fact that, you know, Miami FC is going to take what you give them. They're not going to necessarily try to force one side of play down your throat. If you're going to give them the flanks, they're going to take the flanks. And we've seen them dominate on the flanks. If you decide that you want to minimize Sam McFarland's input and Chris Turpak and Dario Suarez, well, now you're all going to see Dylan Morris step up and Ario Martinez step up within that midfield and through the middle, feeding balls to Jaime Chavez. So it's really pick your poison if you're FC Motown. Um, you know, And it's really going to be is how can FC Motown's defense stack up against that strong attack from Miami FC, which while they they were by no means necessarily the leading goal scorers uh, across the board, cumulative and on the individual stats uh, throughout the MPSL, talent-wise, though, they are one of the best. Uh, yeah, I would agree. And it's going to be really interesting to see uh, these two teams square off for a national championship. And, and, and as far as I fancy myself an amateur... Miami soccer historian type guy. And as far as I can tell, no Miami team has no Miami professional soccer team in the MPSL. It, it, it does have amateur status with some of its players, but this is Miami FC two are they have professional players that are being play, paid. As far as I'm aware, no professional team from Miami has ever won 
uh, a national championship bar the spring and fall titles of Miami FC in the NASL last year, but that's not considered the actual title title. You want to win the soccer bowl. So there, there is a lot on the line for this club. Uh, you know, there was a write-up in the Miami Herald by Michelle Kaufman about, you know, the club dealing with these kind of uncertainties about the league, et cetera, et cetera, uh, going in and, and having this opportunity to win this. Uh, I think a lot of, of soccer folks in South Florida should be having their their eyes and ears open tomorrow night. Yeah, absolutely. And and just to piggyback on what you said, a lot of people might might be quick to say, well, the Miami Fusion in 2001 won the Supporters' Shield. Well, yeah, they won the Supporters' Shield, but that, that's not the championship. You know, if you yes. want to go off the league table, that's fine. Miami FC did it twice, essentially. But, yeah, it's not necessarily the playoff championship. It's not the cup that you're going to receive at the end. And Miami FC has a chance to make a rare feat. They're going for the MPSL trouble, which essentially, you know, if you want to win... Uh, these tournaments usually have to win the MPSL trouble. You got to win the conference, you got to win the region, and you got to win the championship if you wanted to gather all three. But you know, it, it's not a small feat for this club, and and really the future is bright. And for a lot of these guys, you know, it's going to hurt to publicly say this, but a lot of these guys are going to be playing for their next contracts. And and don't be surprised if you see a good showing, uh, especially in the championship games from individual players like Dylan Mars, Ariel Martinez, for them to get a look at a minimum at a USL side. You know, there's still another two months left to go in the season. The transfer window is still going to be open here, I believe, for another week or two. So you could see them essentially, you know, get a chance to play professional soccer for an extended period of time. And whether they come back to Miami or not, you know, that's going to be a question that would need to be answered later on down the road, despite, you know, depending on what Miami's uh, positioning is within the United States soccer pyramid. Um, But don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if right after this game you see certain players uh, get opportunities with different clubs in the U.S. that will still actively be playing. Uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot on the line, uh, if you don't already know. Uh, the game is tomorrow, Saturday, August 4th, kicking off at 7.30 p.m. Uh, there is a watch party, I know, through Dade Brigade that should be taking place at Winwood Brewery. Uh, there is a live stream on mpsl.com. Uh, that kicks off at 7, uh, if you happen to be in that part of the world. It is in Morristown, New Jersey, uh, at the campus, I believe, of Drew University, which is a shout-out to our man Drew Hausman, of course, from New Jersey himself. Uh, he's actually up in New Jersey. He will be at the game, so we'll get some some up-close-and-personal takes from Drew uh, tomorrow on our social media feeds. Uh, Omar, as, as far as I'm concerned, I think we're done for today, yes? Yeah, that's about it. All our as, we, as we kind of wind down... Uh, the season here we will be back with a season in review podcast here within the next week or two and then we'll have a couple more matches to look forward which we'll talk about uh, again in that season recap podcast so stay tuned our season's coming to a close but our content is not as always you can always follow us on all platforms usually using magic city soccer on instagram you can find us on magic city sock that's s-o-c um, and you can always visit our website at magiccity.soccer, magiccitysoccer.co. Yes. Um, also, shout out Jill Ellis, uh, Palmetto Bay Zone uh, resident for for leading the U.S. Women's National Team to victory over Brazil last night and for the uh, Tournament of Nations Cup. Uh, it's always good to see her do well. I was a uh, bit of a conversation with Carter Krishnayer last night on Twitter. Uh, she is the definition of survivor. Because it seems like for years people have been eager to run her off that team uh, for one reason or another. And yet she uh, 
emerges with a big victory over Brazil, and that team is as well positioned as any uh, for the Women's World Cup next next season, uh, next year. So uh, that will be very interesting. So I, I think that'll do it. Obviously, uh, stay with the website with all the MLS developments that are going to be happening. Uh, we've got a lot of uh, kind of off-season stuff planned and, and our transition into uh, college coverage uh, heading into August and September. Uh, it's going to be busy, so stay with us. So uh, until next time, uh, Omar Mubayad, thank you, sir. No problem, Matt. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, and I've been Matthew Bunch, and so until next time, go Miami FC 2 and go Miami Soccer. <laughs>